Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! Welcome to episode 16 of One Step Beyond, a show about stepping outside your comfort zone and positively engaging with the world outside our door. My name is Tony Fletcher. In that default world, I primarily write, primarily about music, which I play somewhat too. One Step Beyond is where I indulge my love of the outdoor lifestyle, of travel, and of the notion that if we shake our lives up a little, we can hopefully improve ourselves and thereby make our collective experiences here in this world that much more bearable. I often start these shows by talking a little about my own activities in this regard. I'm going to carry that over to the end of this particular show. So if you enjoy those audio diary entries, stick around. I hope you do anyway. I'd really like to thank everyone who commented on the last episode, which I promoted as a bonus, a sort of half episode, a short story I put out for Thanksgiving, knowing that the traffic was going to take a hit with it being a big holiday weekend and what with three quarters of my listenership being in the States and the fact that I usually drop the episodes on a Thursday. It was quite nice, I have to say, for one thing, not to put in what's usually, genuinely, a solid two or three days of work of recording, editing, producing an episode but it was equally nice to actually get more emails than usual from people telling me how much they enjoyed it. There's plenty more where that story came from, i.e. my global backpacking travels in 2016, and I'll be happy to share some of them with you, either on this show or through some other form of audio. Or perhaps I'll get on with writing another book. If you haven't heard the story, set in Morocco on an overnight bus journey, and you'd like to, look for episode 15.5. It's called... You don't believe in God? And if that sounds incorrect to you as a regular listener because you could swear it was called It's Not True, what can I tell you? I came up with a better title down the line and I altered the metadata. I'm back to recording and editing this show at home. The studios at Radio Kingston, where I usually record my voiceovers and where the station is good enough to broadcast this show and in fact encouraged me to make it in the first place, which I appreciate. Thanks, Jimmy has taken the necessarily cautious move to effectively close down again, reduce itself to a skeleton staff for the winter. This puts it in line with recent decisions made by my son's local school district and also the Rock Academy I work at part-time to go fully remote in the hope of mitigating the ongoing spread of the coronavirus at the start of what looks like being a long, dark winter in the States, the arrival of vaccines notwithstanding. And that brings us to this episode, Travel in the Age of COVID. Almost everyone, myself included, has accepted that long-term international travel is just not viable this year, and likely well into next year as well. But what if your lifestyle is to travel? What if you live on the road? What if you are already somewhere else on the planet when lockdown happens? Does it all stop? And if it does stop, where do you find yourself when it stops and can you survive there? And if it doesn't stop, what does that mean? And how is it to travel in the age of COVID? What are the challenges, the pitfalls, and hopefully the rewards? To that end, I spoke with someone who goes by the handle of the nomadic backpacker. His real name is Trevor Warman, and he has spent the bulk of the last 28 years on the road, living from country to country, bus journey to bus journey, hostel to hostel. Now, this would make for an interesting story in normal times, but I think it's even more interesting in 2020, because, as you'll find out, Trevor has had to stay just one step ahead of potential national pandemics. It's made for a year that has been alternately extremely static for him, and then very, very mobile, and clearly difficult from start to finish. And over the course of two interviews, he shared with me those perils and pitfalls of being a nomad during a global pandemic. And so while this show is essentially here to tell and share positive stories, I think it's also good to have a reality check. The world is not all unicorns and rainbows. 
My first conversation with Trevor was on September 30th, when things were looking relatively good for the planet COVID-wise, all things considered. And we talked a lot about his life of travel. Not so much favourite countries or foods or photographs, but about the nuts and bolts of it. About getting from A to D via B and C. And certainly about where and how he spent lockdown and what he was facing at that moment in time that we spoke, where I found him in the Balkans. But then Trevor's COVID circumstances changed, and so in mid-November we spoke again. And right now, in the second week of December, we could easily have done a third interview, because just before I recorded this, he surfaced on an entirely different continent in that ongoing battle to stay that one step ahead of COVID and national lockdowns. From where I'm sitting, I think Trevor's done an amazing job this year, not only of keeping himself safe while travelling, but keeping everyone around him safe in the process. But safe is not the same as sane. And on his nomadicbackpacker.com, on December 7th, he wrote a long post entitled Starting to Lose My Grip. I'm going to read some of it now, and more of it, at the end of our two chats. Travelling during this coronavirus pandemic has become a never-ending emotional roller coaster. he writes. People are posting about how they wish they were travelling, either because they can't leave their home other than for an hour a day, or the government has stopped them from flying out through fear of having to self-quarantine on their return, or simply by shutting the borders and or airports. I get it that you are going stir-crazy. I am doing what you would like to be doing, and I am going stir-crazy too. You are not alone. But people, I tell you, you do not want to be traveling right now. What you are wishing for is based on how you remember how traveling used to be. Traveling is no longer the same. The hashtag new normal sucks like hell. Trevor and I talked by Skype for both calls, which prevents me from mixing our two voices separately as I can do with Zoom. And the second of the calls had what may have been some Wi-Fi issues. You'll hear what I mean. And with that, I invite you to kick back, step out, dress down, or do the Fandango, whatever turns you on, and prepare to join us as we go... One Step Beyond! Welcome to One Step Beyond, Trevor, the nomadic backpacker, I believe you go by. How are you doing? And most importantly, where are you talking to me from? I am in uh, Pog- Podredek, Pogredets. That's on in Albania on the south shore of Lake Orid, which is shared between Albania and North Macedonia. And for those who have a very limited sense of geography, where will they find that on their global map? Oh, just across the east of left of uh, right of right of Italy. To the right of Italy. I believe that's to the east, isn't it? <laughs> I think we yes. get that. Across <laughs> uh, a little bit of sea and um, yeah. So how long have you been in Albania? Almost two months. It's all a long story, you know, because of you know, Corona. But um, I, ca- I came in on August the 3rd and I hopefully can cross the border to Macedonia tomorrow. Oh, exciting. Assuming no tests required, um, yeah, that's the that's the plan for tomorrow. It's uh, the border's just seven kilometers from here. So, well, I appreciate you spending your last uh, your last evening in Albania in my company. <laughs> so that's so. What what I, I I've got a note here to to ask you when you were last home. But I think perhaps the better question is. What do what do you as a as your your handle says you're a nomadic backpacker? What do you call home? There is still a little bit of a link um, to a place just north of London in England. Um, it's where my dad is. It's where I was born, um, and uh, yeah, I'm not permanently on the road. Um, I go away for long periods of time. Um, when the money is exhausted, I go home um, and then uh, I work and save. Basically, yeah, I work and I work and do nothing else other than eat, work, and sleep, and put in as much money into the bank account as I can to recover because it's normally 
couple of times it's been drained almost to, almost to nothing. Were you born adventurous? Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Um, I don't have it in, inherited from anybody. I think one of my cousins was um, in Berlin when the Berlin Wall came down. Um, that's about as far as it gets. You know, I was hiking and um, I did some cycle touring in the UK um, as well. But like, yeah, as a backpacker, I was almost 25. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, you know, I went to easy countries, you know, everybody spoke English like Australia, New Zealand. Uh, and it took me a while. I was 30 when I first went to a um, out of my comfort zone type of country. Vietnam, for example, I was ready for it then. But you see some backpackers, you know, they're 18 or whatever in India and hats off to them. You know, no way was at 18 was I ready for that um, input from, you know, the, the chaos, the how, you know, how different life is, you know, in a country like Vietnam at 18, you know, I wasn't I was nowhere near ready in my own personal development um but at, at 30 you know and then i was and then you know you just keep on going to newer exciting countries trevor's background prior to hitting the road was perfectly normal went to school didn't love it was happy to be done with it took a job went to work in a hotel in scotland and it was there that he heard from other staff that you could go fruit picking in australia in the off season and that's it I didn't travel to escape or find find myself. Definitely wasn't escaping for, from anything. Um, uh, and if you're asking how or why I got into the traveling, it seemed a good idea at the time. And yeah, because you know these the, the people in this hotel up in Scotland, you know, called, sort of suggested it, and I thought, oh well, no, why not? You know. And, you know, to be honest, I hated the trip. Australia is massive. Every time you go anywhere, it's 18 hours on a bus. You know, I was thinking, what the hell is this? What's the point? You know, I'm not like I was very shy at that point and I wasn't meeting so many people. I met some people, of course, but, you know, it didn't do anything for me, you know, the first trip. I, I admit that, but then... I went to Tasmania. It was 25 degrees cooler in Tasmania. It was raining. I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know a lot of British people who were like, I need some rain in my life. It's the only I'm I'm happy when it rains, you know? <laughs> yeah, everything was green and like everybody was... The Australians are very friendly, but like the, the Tasmanians, they were just like, you know, completely off the scale as, of, of friendliness. Um, so, you know, and then you, you could go hiking, you know, it wasn't 45 degrees and, you know, uh, obviously it's smaller, there was national parks all set up, easy transport options and whatever. And I, I loved it, you know. I'm with him. For those who don't know, Tasmania is part of Australia. It's an island off the south coast. I went there in 2016 and after I went on to New Zealand, I came to feel like, oh, Tasmania is Australia's own little New Zealand. Like, it's very cool, very cultured, fantastic wines, 40% of it is national parks or state reserves, and it's verdant, green and lush, which all sounds quite like New Zealand, but is not true of too much of the Australian mainland. And for Trevor, the initial experience of Tasmania was enough to eventually convince him to return to the Australian subcontinent. Four years and a bit later, I tried again. Just a different trip, plus my my shyness had gone a lot, and I was much more confident in myself, and it must, just made it easier for me to enjoy myself, you know? So, yeah, it made a, a big change. Does travel force somebody to be less shy and be more open, or do you have to work through that in a variety of ways? I think For, for me, I think it was more um, just being being confident in myself um, and, you know, having, you have a few more experiences under, you know, underneath your belt and, you know, you can say, hey, you know, I did this, I survived, you know, um, 
And so it progresses, you know. I'm really curious about once you started visiting these non-English speaking countries, and you said Vietnam was first, but you've now listed on your your website on nomadicbackpacker.com, you've listed 96 countries that you visited and and counting and uh, just scrolling through them that the, the vast majority are, are non-English speaking countries. So, so that would beg the question, well, what is it then that has motivated you to spend effectively the last 20 years traveling uh, as often and for as much time as you, as you can? What is What is the motivation? Why do you do it? This is what I do. This is what I'm good at. This is what I enjoy. Um, tough times now because I have to stay put for some time because, yeah, it's the coronavirus has knocked everybody's, you know, lifestyle on, on the head, doesn't it? Uh, even mine, even though I am still on the road, it's completely different from what I'm normally doing. Um, right. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm good at this. I'm confident in, you know, backpacking down through Africa, no problems at all. It would seem to me that presumably there's also a lot to be gained from seeing other countries, meeting other people, meeting other travelers, learning how the world works, nature, adventure that you might have. Is Does that all roll into it as opposed to it That's... simply being, I do it because I do it? Yeah, there, there, there is. I also just simply get a buzz from being on the road. Um, I love sometimes you you know you get to a good place and you know you think oh you know maybe one more day one more day or whatever but then you know when I'm sitting on the bus watching the watching the world go past the window I'm just like I love it I'm really yeah. glad to hear that because I'm I'm known for being quite restless Did, uh, yeah I, I think I am known for being restless and when we were traveling I was always just What's the next place? What's the next place? Not because I'm not enjoying the current place, because I was, but like you, that buzz of when we're moving, I'm really, really happy when we're when we're on the move. And in fact, I realized as I have tried writing about my travels that most of the stories take place while you are actually traveling. They don't necessarily take place, particularly when you're static. They tend to take place as you're moving on buses, on trains, in a in some crazy taxi that's you know driving around the mountains, and you're convinced it's going to go off the edge of a cliff. That that kind of thing. It's it's I I fully understand that getting the buzz from being mobile. Yeah, and the the overnight stops, or mm-hmm. the, you know one or two days, are simply to recover from <laughs> recover from the journey. You know, uh, find some breathing space and like you know calm down a bit and, uh, you know, wash your clothes because of the, you know, for example, in West Africa, you know, the the towns are more often than not really nothing to write home about. But the journey in between, in you know, from town to town is the, is the adventure, you know, and it's, it's part of the adventure. It's what you talk about. <laughs> it's like, you know, you could spend, you know, 15 hours, like, you know, stuck in a little, Peugeot 505 estate car with you know with 15 others and another three on the roof and you know you know yeah you you talk about it you know but at the time it's like not always enjoyable you'll have heard Trevor mention Africa there he did his first journey to the continent in 2013 exploring much of the western side in 2016 he returned to tackle the country from its other coast next trip was Cairo to Cape Town Straight down Sudan, Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, um, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, South Africa, with a side trip to Lesotho, Lesotho in, in the middle of it. How was it? East Africa is enjoyable. Um, West Africa, I find tough, apart from Morocco, because it's it's a lot easier but west africa is tough the the roads and the language barrier um my french i can speak french but i communication is quite is taxing it's not i you know i can survive but it's taxing whereas east africa um it's it's much more enjoyable you can relax I find you can re- I can relax a lot more in East, East Africa than I can in the West. 
It turns out that Cairo to Cape Town, overland, is a known route among travellers, which doesn't mean it's a busy one. Like in Sudan, you know, it's not like, you know, going to Thailand, you know, and there's like, you know, backpacker after backpackers, you know, they see a few per month, but they they are used to seeing us. They know what our needs are. You know, life is life is pretty good. Um, yeah, buses, buses, trains, few boats sailed down the Nile from uh, Aswan to Wadi Halfa on um, in Sudan. Um, I've crossed Lake Malawi in a boat as well. I wanted to take the one down uh, Lake Tanganyika, but that, that didn't happen. Um, yeah, but mostly buses, trains. When there are trains, then there's not that many trains left in Africa now. Right. So, and when you're taking those buses, because you mentioned something about Vietnam, uh, there can be different le- levels of buses, sort of luxury buses for tourists, uh, all the way down to dollar dollars for for local people, and and of course crowded taxis and motorbikes, the whole thing. You, uh, what what would you tend to choose for travel? Do you do you try and travel as the locals do, or what what do you find the yeah, best way? Yeah, definitely. You know, um, I take the I take the local the local buses. Rarely do I take a tourist bus yeah so i you know i've been in like you know the little tiny tiny minivans in indonesia i've been in like you know the, the, the minivans in kenya and you know the shared taxis in west africa i've been in everything would you would you think that makes it a little easier just the fact that the more you travel the more comfortable you can be with traveling the more confidence you can have about just traveling with the locals and just dealing with discomforts and knowing that, that everything's are going to be safe and you'll get to your destination eventually yeah, it comes with experience. Yeah, um, you know, my my first time in Vietnam, you know, you're going from the airport. I think it was like, you know, it was already dark, and you know, you're going down the road in a, a small minivan in Vietnam, you know, and it's a freeway. But you know, there's you know, there's buffalo crossing the road, there's people, you know, crossing, there's bicycles zig zigzagging, and there's cars swerving there's trucks swerving and you know the minivan is going through oh you know trying to avoid everybody they'd like oh my god oh my god oh my god and you're gripping the you're gripping the seat in front you know and after a while you like that you don't you don't even notice it anymore unfortunately for trevor at the end of his overland trip all the way down through africa through countries that most people will never visit in their life then at the final destination, the big tourist coastal city of Cape Town in South Africa, he was accosted by two knife-wielding attackers on his walk from the bus station to his hostel. Somehow, he escaped unscathed, and with his bags still in his possession, despite being wrestled to the ground, he figures someone may have stumbled on his attackers and frightened them. The experience clearly frightened him. I'm vulnerable because you're on your own, and I refused stupidly sometimes refuse to take a taxi for such a short distance but um yeah some some countries have got a, a reputation as being dangerous more dangerous than others some diver- deservedly slow so you got to trust your instincts yeah the, the situation in in cape town was you know i'd, I'd done 19,000 kilometers through Africa, you know, all about the, you know, couple of rush trips to the bathroom and a few bed bugs in Ethiopia, but like nothing, you know, everybody was friendly and um, sometimes over friendly, but like, yeah, that's like, it's normal, but like, it was a huge disappointment, you know, to be almost nobbled on my last town, you know, like my last stop there. So, but is, yeah, that the very, is that the very worst it's been for you? I mean, having been to 96 countries, how many times have you been robbed and how many times have you been physically attacked? Yeah, attacked, yes, one time in on that trip in Cape Town. Now, I don't know about you, but I got attacked more than that on an average year in London growing up. Truly, it was a rough city. Which is not to downplay in any way, shape or form the terror being attacked at knife point in a strange country. The good news is, though, there's always someone to remind you that humans are largely decent people. And it was also in South Africa that Trevor was taken in by a woman and a husband for a night of sustenance and rest when he was seen looking very lost and out of sorts at the bus station elsewhere in the country. 
And unlike Ollie Hunter-Smart, who walked the length of India and was my guest on episode 14, Trev says that those kind of interactions are minimal. I'm very wary. Um, and, you know, you're on your own. You are vulnerable. You don't know what you're getting into. And you've got to make a snap decision. Do you trust this person or not? There's a, there's a saying where, you know, if the, if the person is looking you in the eye, you can trust them. If they don't give you eye contact, avoid them. Always been wary, even like, for example, in Morocco, you know, they, they say, oh, come, come, drink tea, and then they give you the bill, you know, which doesn't happen in Sudan. An invite is an invite, not an invitation to, you know, write you a check at the end of it. Um, Sudan, Syria, Pakistan, totally friendly and trusting locals. Sudan, Syria and Pakistan are probably not the first countries most people would think of when asked to name the world's friendliest locals. And that's a further reminder that we all need to be aware of our prejudices, I guess, however accidental they may be, that are the result of media stereotypes. While allowing that civil wars and extremists will undoubtedly influence those stereotypes. Unfortunately, Syria a country my mother also visited and said likewise had some of the loveliest people she'd ever met, and she travelled, descended into that civil war very quickly after Trevor's visit in 2010. The internal collapse of that country and the inability of the rest of the world to help address it was surely the great international tragedy of the previous decade. It's difficult to imagine when any of us can safely explore Syria again. At least there are plenty other countries out there. Oh, about having 96 countries, is that, are you trying to like tick them all off? Is this a numbers game or is it about the quality of your travels? Uh, quality, yes, because if I'd wanted to, I could have done 150 by now. Um, I'm not, I'm always happy to get, oh, I'm going to go to a new country. I'm always happy to do that, you know, and I'm aware of how many I have been to, but not, you know, it's not the goal, you know, I've been to, Borneo six times, you know, I've been in Thailand 10 times, you know, I've been in Peninsula, Malaysia 10 times, you know, if, if I devoted my time, time and energy and money to tick them off, you know, I've only got to go to South America, you know, and like, you know, tick all of them off there, you know, I'm, I'm aware of it. I like to be aware of the numbers, but it's not the goal, you know, because otherwise, like I said, you know, I could, you know, because I generally spend a month in each country, you know, it's not like you know, I'm there for one day and then go to the next one and tick off another, you know. Um, yeah, but like spent, so, you know, like three or four months in or three months in some places, you know. Yeah, sometimes you need to, to have, have the experience. How, um, how, given the lifestyle that you lead, how easy is it to develop and maintain your personal relationships? I guess I mean romantic relationships. And is that something that is even being part of your life? I mean, that's one thing that somebody looking at your lifestyle would, I'm sure, ask. Um, they do happen, not for a while, but my experience is they happen a lot less than people like to make out they do. <laughs> um, maybe I'm just like, I don't know, like, whatever. I don't know. Yeah, they do happen. Um, maybe because I don't go to enough bars. Maybe it's just easier if you go to a bar, like, just, just like it is anywhere. I'm getting older, you know. Maybe this this whole backpacker game is more, you know, it is obviously a... A younger person's game you know but uh you know i'm still having fun you know i don't care like okay i'm 50 53 soon you know i don't like i'm still doing my thing you know all the all the people i met that you know who were in india at 18 or whatever you know they've all got gone home married never traveled again whereas i started late at 24 you know but hey i'm still doing it you know but just on that on that side of the personal relationships, you know, for some people, it's not the you know not a driving factor in life. They're not looking to be parents. They're not you know they're not necessarily looking for a, for a life partner. But did you ever meet someone and end up going traveling with them for a while? Is that part of part of the traveler's story? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, um, not recently, no, and not in Africa. I didn't. You know, I've got my I have my idea. It's not a fixed plan. 
you know, written in stone, or oh, I've got to go this way, got to go there, there, there. You know, I kind of like make it up as I go along. You know, when I was in, you know, I got through, I was in Kenya coming, having been through Sudan and Ethiopia and I was in Kenya. I, you know, I couldn't decide whether I was going to the, like, you know, the Swahili coast or I was going inland a bit more, you know, and then they ended, like, ended up zigzagging across, you know. Um, but the, the plans there in Africa weren't changed for meeting anybody. But I've yeah I have met people on other trips in uh, in India for example uh, I met somebody and we travelled together for almost three weeks but uh, they you know they had a a shorter time frame you know so uh, yeah that was that was a very beautiful experience that was so yeah you know I'm not a you know, complete diehard diehard loner um, you know I I can get by on my own you know but. It's also nice sometimes, you know, to share a travel with like-minded people, you know. If you're with, like, the, when I went to Vietnam, you know, I was with a, a girlfriend then, and, you know, it, it's a sure test of your compatibility and your ability to, you know, compromise on both sides and to get it to work because, you know, if you're t together for 24 hours a day, it's, you know, because that's not normal. You know, normal life is, you know, you sleep for eight hours, you go to work for eight, nine hours, you know, you're only at home for like, you know, three or four hours together every day, you know, that's like normal life. So when you're on travels, you know, you're with each other and, you know, they're finding it hard, you're finding it hard and they get sick and you want to do something and they don't want to do anything. It's, so it's, it can be tough. Tell me about it. Actually, on second thoughts, don't. Let's change the subject. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about how coronavirus is impacting um, traveling right now. Uh, my understanding is that when the lockdown happened, you were you know, on your travels and like like a lot of people I know, you got locked down. Um, do you want to tell us briefly what happened to you and, and how, how you eventually got out and indeed why you ended up in Albania? Yeah, I spent my lockdown in, in Kenya, um, a place called Naivasha. It's about 100 kilometers, 60 miles northwest of, of Nairobi. Um, I'd, I'd been in West Africa and I flew out from, um, from Ivory Coast to Kenya. And um, that was like middle of March. And then I did the right thing at that time. You know, I self-isolated, haven't been on two planes. And... Uh, I think three days later, they, they said they made um, self-isolation compulsory. And about a week later, they shut the airport. And then, uh, then they shut the borders. And then the week before Easter, they closed. The, they locked down Nairobi. So I was out of Nairobi and I could actually go, but they closed most of the hotels. Um, so it didn't seem no point in going anywhere. And um, yeah, so it paralyzed the country. Um, nothing can go in or out of Nairobi, which is like a hub. It's like London. Everything goes in and back out again. Um, yeah, so I was in this guest house for 105 days. <laughs> um, it was quite well looked after. You know, I had a, you know, they gave me they gave me food because I had to use the food up anyway because you know otherwise they were going to throw it away. And um, it was a very anxious time because just didn't know like how long it was going on for. You know, the land, the airport's closed, the land borders to Uganda, Tanzania and are closed. So how long will it go? You know, people are getting hungry and um, there was always, a, there was about an evacuation flight every week going out London and uh, London to pa and Paris and uh, Amsterdam mostly. Uh, but they were getting expensive. You know, you'd have to get a, an $80 COVID test and, uh, you know, plus it was going to cost me $60 just to get to the airport, um, plus all the paperwork to get through the roadblocks. Um, so effectively, you, you decided to wait it out. Is yeah, I was, I, was, I was all for waiting out, you know. It was like, you know, we, nobody knew how long it was going to go on for. You know, there was a report out of South Africa that they were going to be closed till 2021. I was thinking, I've been here three months. Do I really need another six months, you know? Um, I just probably wouldn't have got, would have gone out of my mind, you know. Were there other travellers uh, in the guest house? No, no. Um, obviously, the staff speak English, you know, and I, I could walk around the garden. I could go into town. Everything was business as normal, just a curfew, nightly curfew and lack of transport. Um, right. So, yeah, in the end, I took a, a, an, uh, a KLM Dutch organized 
evacuation flight to Amsterdam. And at that time, this is the end of June, and nobody, you know, everybody had rules of what to do, people flying from London to Italy and Italy to France and et cetera, et cetera, within Europe. What do we do about people coming in from Africa? Oh, mm, nobody knows. So I, I didn't know. They don't know. I didn't know because everybody who's taking these evacuation flights were going home. Like, I didn't need to go home. I just had to go to somewhere that was open, you know? I'm like, okay, Serbia is open. Let's go to Serbia. So I got a flight from Amsterdam to Serbia, and um, you know, and I'm still in the Balkans. When were, when were you last home, as we as you call? Yeah, I left in uh, January, January sixth this year. Okay, so um, in in that area that you're in in the Balkans, um, you know, how is life? Is does the, you know on a scale of normalcy? How is life there? Totally normal. Really? I, I mean, I'm in Albania. Um, there's a couple of supermarkets. You have to wear the mask. Uh, some of the malls that are in Tirana, the capital, yeah, you get temperatures zapped when you're going in. Um, yeah, most people don't wear masks. but Almost everybody doesn't wear a mask. Is that, small- because, is that because they're not seeing infections? I'm, I'm curious. I, I don't know, you know what's going on in every country. Are they, are they feeling that this is generally a safe place? No, they. I. I don't know why. You know, they. I don't know the reason why they don't feel threatened. Um, if you look at, you know, they. If they. If they are comparing their stats to U.S., U.K., Italy, Spain, France, where the stats are massive, and you look at the stats here, oh, it's hardly any. But then, like, like there's a tiny population here. You know, plus they're not testing. They don't know. They. They're not testing people. You know. Without tests, you can't have cases, can you? That, then, was the situation at the end of September. By the middle of November, rates were rising everywhere, but especially in Central and Eastern Europe, and perhaps as a direct result of the laissez-faire attitude to the virus that Trevor was witnessing. Unfortunately, despite taking his own precautions, he got caught up in all of that, as we discussed when we reconvened for a second talk. That conversation got broken up now and then by a bad connection. I'm sure you can fill in any gaps. Can you tell me your movements since we spoke at the end of September and how it's been impacted by COVID? Yeah, I'm now in Cappadocia in Turkey. Um, Yeah, it's been quite an adventure. As you said, uh, when we spoke last time, it was my last evening in Albania and I crossed as planned the next day into North Macedonia. Uh, went to a couple of places, um, but the, the the big uh, adventure, not really adventure, it's not really the right word, um, apparent how difficult, how testing, how um, scary travel in this uh, coronavirus pandemic can be. Essentially, events went like this. Trevor shared a dorm room in Skopje, North Macedonia, with another traveller who was going to get a Covid test in the morning to continue his own travels by motorbike into another country. It seemed a routine process, except that other person's test returned positive. And Trevor was swiftly informed by the local health department the same day that he too needed to quarantine for the next 14 days. That necessitated a frantic rush to find a place he could safely do so, considering he could hardly continue in a shared dorm room and no hostel readily wanted someone who might be infected with COVID. He ended up in isolation on the top floor of a hostel. Fortunately, he didn't develop symptoms and he found out from the other traveller that he didn't get any worse for that guy either. But it was a heady reminder of the perils of travel in the age of COVID. You know, because everybody wants to travel, but they don't uh, realise the ramifications of what happens if you go for a test for yourself and you get tested positive. What is the country you're in going to do to you, where they're going to send you? The other one is if you are on a bus, on a plane, in a hostel dorm next to somebody who has been for a test and it turns out positive, you're basically screwed a bit. 
How was your um, how was your emotional and mental state during that time? I, I I imagine there's a part of you looking out for symptoms and worried every time you sneeze. You know, you think the worst, don't you? It's only natural. And every sneeze, every sniffle, you think, oh my god. I think I was good until I would out of a bit of a breakdown on day two, <laughs> um, and then I think the next one was at about five, and then I was pretty good after that, you know. Spending 14 days locked in a room at the top of a hostel in a city is nobody's definition of a nomadic existence. Which means it's not surprising that as soon as he was given the all clear that he could move about again, Trevor did exactly that. So I um, had, had two days walking around in the city and then on my 15th day I, I left the country. And I went to the bus station on my two, on my two days and said, yeah, I want a bus ticket to to Turkey. Um, it was basically going from Skopje to Istanbul direct through Serb- uh, through Bulgaria, non-stop. How's, how's the situation in Turkey and how do people feel about COVID there? Regarding masks, everyone wears a mask. Whereas in Albania, nobody wore a mask. In Kosovo, people did because there were police on the street fining everybody. Uh, North Macedonia was a very a case of you wear a mask because uh, there's there might be some police around. <laughs> uh, whereas in Turkey, everyone is wearing them. I got stopped in Istanbul once. I got stopped in Ankara. They're looking. They're checking ID and they're stopping cars left, right, and centre for driving licences and everything. You know. I was watching one of your videos and. Interestingly, for a country that sounds like it's taking it so seriously, I think you said you, you were able to just come into Turkey um, with, without temperature checks, tests, etc. Was, was that because you were carrying any information from North Macedonia, or was that some kind of lapse in the Turkish system when you came through by bus? Yeah, I'd say it was the latter on that, because, um, yeah, we arrived at the, the main... Um, it's the main border crossing, isn't it? Uh, I don't know the name of Edino or something like that. I, I'm not sure how it's called. Um, it is the major um, border crossing between Turkey and Bulgaria. Just straight in. In one of those moments of, well, perfect serendipity, the very day I'm editing this, the New York Times is running a story about Istanbul, how it's locked down for locals, but not for the tourists. The story does say that, quote, since reopening its borders to international tourists in June, Turkey has not required testing or quarantine upon arrival. Health screening and temperature checks are carried out at airports and anybody found to have COVID symptoms is taken to a medical facility for testing. Now, that story mentions airports. It doesn't mention the lack of screening or temperature checks elsewhere at the border. But that said, If Turkey's measures seem somewhat extreme in terms of uh, policing the cities and possibly somewhat lax in terms of policing the borders, well, let's take a look at their cases and death rates. And as of this same today, editing the show, those rates are one third those of the USA. Case rates per 100,000 and death rates. Turkey, then, got a figure, is doing something right. And that includes giving tourists their very own code meaning they can trace you as you go around the country and presumably contact you if they figure you've been exposed. I don't know how it works regarding the track and trace because they don't have my WhatsApp number. They don't have, they have my passport number. That's all they have. And I've got a code which I need to produce when I want to buy a bus ticket to the next place. Uh, When you go to a hotel, yes, they they lock your passport. So... Um, yeah, I've been in like four places now, so I'm not four or five places, so I'm not sure whether it's automated into the police immigration system that, you know, immediately, uh, you know, they know where you are. Could be like that. There are going to be those people listening who are going to just instinctively say like, dude, stop traveling. <laughs> this is, you know, this is dangerous. We've got a pandemic going on and it's, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's travelers, it's people who you know, think it's safe to travel, nomads, whatever you want to call yourselves. You know, you're the one spreading a virus around the world. Can't you just stay home for a few months until we get through this? So what's your, what's your response to that? Uh, in the beginning, 
like back in April, which by already then it was way too late. You know, we didn't know about it. We but we probably should have been locking down in December. It's already spread everywhere you go. There is COVID. So, you know, what what is the difference of me social distancing using you know a liter of sanitizer a week and wearing my mask every day? What risk do I have apart from to myself of going to a country like Albania where nobody wears a mask? Uh, COVID is already in Albania. COVID is everywhere. You still have you know, husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, partners leave their kids, the kids go to school, they kiss their kids goodnight, people are hugging, I'm not doing any of that. I just reduce, I reduce, reduce the amount of social social contact. Um, and other times, yes, I'm wearing a mask, not because you have to, I'm wearing it because it's the, what I feel is right. I do want to mention this, that when, when the European football started up again, sort of, you know, uh, several weeks back, uh, it was fascinating. I was watching just this um, compilation of all the goals from like one day in, you know, like maybe the Champions League or, or the Europa League. And all across Western Europe, there were no fans in the stadiums. You know, they were like the you know, empty stadiums. And all, all across Eastern Europe, it was just this weird culture shock. You'd see fans there, whether or not they were masked up, you'd see fans there. You know, sure enough, the sort of, you know, the spread has really taken off in Eastern Europe. So I, I, I personally can see some cause and effect, just like I can when uh, a state like South Dakota says, oh, no, this doesn't affect us. You know, we're this big, wide open state with no, no residents. Why don't we have a massive motorbike rally? You know, you can bring 200,000 motorbikers in here. It's absolutely fine. And now, now South Dakota has a higher death rate than, um, than probably any country in Europe. Uh, so... Mm-hmm. You know, there are things, but, but that's to do with people who are not taking precautions or not taking it seriously, um, which I recognize that you are. But it also brings back the question, which we, which we definitely hit, hit up on last time around, which is, what is home for someone like you? Home, home was always the house where I was born, where my father is still living. Um, he is high risk, determined by, determined by the government, he is high risk, so... Uh, you know, I cannot go back there, you know, so I have no place to go there. Um, you know, the economic situation, trying to get a work, get a job in the pandemic, it's pretty hopeless, isn't it? So there's no real call for me to go home. Although if I had the financial um, strategy to have a place, Maybe I would, um, you know, just go there and stop for three months, you know, till it all gets under control. But it's it's not viable for me. It's impossible for me. Um, so it's also a little bit scary that you can't just go home, you know, like and you know, go and live with your parents, so or go and live wherever. But I think most of the people are going towards that. Uh, Traveling isn't the danger as we once thought it was. Being irresponsible is the bad bit. Uh, what's next for you, Trevor? After the, after Turkey, I really don't know. You know, who who knows what's going to happen next week? You know, you make a plan, and you know, tomorrow morning it's gone. You know, you, there's no more option left. And that's largely how it turned out. Trevor travelled on further in Turkey, having a good time by the looks of it. But then in late November, Turkey itself went into a partial lockdown, closing everything from 8pm to 10am, even at the weekend, due to rising infection rates. And Trevor decided to get out of there. He promptly resurfaced on his third continent of the year, way across the Atlantic, in Mexico. Now here's a fascinating thing. Trevor's been to 96 countries, actually he's up to 98 now with Mexico. He's made his way through Africa three times solo, has travelled across China twice solo. He's navigated all kinds of hassles and hardships even I would never want to contemplate. And yet, until now, he's never been to Latin America. As he said on a video filmed at the Teotihuacan Pyramids outside Mexico City, I'd always regarded this part of the world, Latin America, as a place I wasn't entirely comfortable coming to. The real reason was my fear for the security aspect here. 
And perhaps that just shows that even the most adventurous of us is capable of getting into their own comfort zone and staying there. Because here I am, almost in awe of this person for his travelling exploits, and yet I've travelled to Latin America several times, and he hasn't. And as Trevor points out for himself, I mean, he made it through five months in China where almost no one speaks English and he doesn't speak Chinese, so what's the likely problem? For the record, Mexico has been hit with one of the higher COVID infection rates, but as things stand right now, in this second week in December, going by seven-day figures, it's no higher or lower than other large countries, essentially right there with the UK and USA. Still, none of us wants to come down with the virus, not when we might find ourselves hospitalised in a foreign country with no idea how we'll pay the bills. So, while I read about Istanbul being open for tourists, and I think, oh man, can I not just get there over Christmas maybe? And while I see pictures of Cappadocia, where Trevor had been, and think, oh, I so wish I could be out there in those amazing, weirdly shaped, eroded hills, just hiking and running and being in the open air. And going so far as to think, well, what's the impact on my family if I do go somewhere? And what are my quarantine requirements when I get back? And could I pull it off? I'm also listening to those on the ground in these hotspots. In the middle of this December 7th blog post, Trevor lists some of the hassles he's been through in his past travels and how, though they aren't fun in the moment, time has a habit of healing the wounds of the negative aspects and you end up retelling them down the line as fun experiences. But then he writes, I will never be retelling my stories about how fun it was travelling during COVID-19. I've just escaped from Turkey as it was starting to lock down again. The 14-hour flight was packed. One Russian lady was refusing to wear her mask. We were that close to aborting takeoff. I hope she's barred from travelling. I don't want to talk about their effectiveness here, but rules are rules. And if wearing a mask protects me and others from spreading any germs to the next person or them passing their germs on to me, even by just 10%, I will happily wear multiple masks for the duration. Some days I feel weird. It doesn't help that I'm sleeping bad or staying in polluted cities and most days I'm finding other things to worry about. It's always on my mind, do I have COVID? I am writing this at a time when morale is a bit low and yep, I feel lonely. I'm heading for the coast soon. I'm planning to stay a while and hoping to find a traveller type of place that has private rooms. It's going to be hot so there will always be lots of fresh air. I can deal with that. I would like to have a hug. I would like to kiss some girl. I need to get laid. It's been a way too long. I want life to go back to how it was. It's a horrendous, emotional, never-ending roller coaster. But with the vaccine starting to be rolled out, the light at the end of the infinitely long tunnel starts to get a little brighter. So to those who wish they were travelling, just wait a while longer. We've got this. And I think you've got this as well, Trevor. I really do. Find that little place on the coast. Chill out. I think you're going to be okay. You can find Trevor at nomadicbackpacker.com where you can buy him a coffee. No, really, you can. As well as on Twitter and YouTube, also as a nomadic backpacker. I'll put those links in the show notes, along with the New York Times article about Istanbul. So what else has been going on around these parts? Well, I was fortunate enough to take part in a proper road marathon in November. The event was organised by the Albany Running Exchange and it was held at the Ultimate Fairgrounds just outside Albany, the capital of New York State, about an hour's drive from me. They had a half marathon organised that when they really, really looked at it and worked at it, found that they could reschedule and pull off at the Ultimate Fairgrounds. And when that went off successfully, they decided to organise and establish what I really trust is just the inaugural, just the debut of a long-standing event called the Upstate Classic, a 5K half and full marathon, with runners going off in meticulously organised groups of four every 10 seconds for over 80 minutes. Now, I only got to do two proper races this year, and both of them, actually, were four marathons. The other one was the Cat's Tail Trail Marathon in October. 
I went into both of them with a really good amount of positivity from spending a lot of time this year outdoors on a combination of uh, surfaces, like out on the roads, out on the trails, out on the mountains. What I did not go into either race with was the kind of soreness, tightness and tiredness that I often do this late in a season full of races. So the result in both cases, both races, was a sense of stamina and confidence. The feeling upon setting off pretty much that, yeah, today's going to be okay. At Albany at the Upstate Classic, I wasn't going to break any PRs. And I knew I couldn't attempt to Boston qualify in time the way I went for it last year, twice. But you know what? I finished just three minutes behind my time in New York last year. And more to the point, and unlike that race, I ran a thoroughly consistent pace from start to finish. It was cold and windy, which sounds like a disadvantage, but it did help with keeping stops at the socially distanced, no-contact water stations to a minimum. I have to say, I was amazed that, given the lack of marathon options this year, only 100 people entered the full distance. This made for a truly solitary second half out on the roads, complete with rolling hills and a couple of headwinds, but I stayed on pace, ticked off the miles, and the only mile that I didn't keep at a standard tempo was the last one, which I was able to somewhat sprint at. As Steve Schellenkamp, a local veteran runner and coach who's popped up a couple of times on these episodes, pointed out, there is a massive difference between running at 95% capacity and 100% capacity. I ran at like, yeah, 95%. I felt that to go even three seconds faster a mile was going to get me into trouble. So, I didn't. I'm totally happy with the race. I'm so thrilled that I got to do that and the cat's tail. And hey, I look forward to perhaps picking up pace next year. I want to give unqualified praise to the Albany Running Exchange for pulling off this race in the middle of a pandemic. Much of that credit goes to Josh Merlis, CEO and founder of ARE, who figured that this was possible and then made it happen. There's a really, really good interview with Josh on episode 255 of the podcast Run Pacers, on which he describes the logistics of putting on an event like this. And also hones in on how we were all so much safer out there at the fairgrounds, socially distanced, than, as a specific example, shopping at the local Walmart. And the point is also made, courtesy of an emotional letter he received from a participant the next day who lost her business this year, that it's not about the racing. It's about having a goal. It's about having something to work towards, something to distract us from the accumulative toll of this terrible year and allow us to end it with something worthwhile to attach to our names and our calendars and our memories. Because, and especially when we use that Walmart example, Getting outside is good for you. The more you can get out and exercise this winter, the better. You should almost by default find yourself socially distancing while doing so. Your immune system will be improved by the experience, and so, I guarantee, will your happiness. Given that so much of this episode has been COVID-related, I'm going to end by sticking on it, but on a really, truly upbeat personal note. Because also on the day of editing... I signed a consent form for my mother to get her COVID vaccine at her care home in the UK. There's a decent likelihood she'll get her first shot before Christmas. It is just possible that I can consider making plans to see her again. I miss her. I miss the UK in general. I really miss my friends over there. But I miss my friends in New York City for that matter. I've never gone a calendar year without visiting the UK or New York City. Not since I moved to the States in 86. But hey, listen, I'm grateful for everything that I do have and I'm willing to wait it out a little longer to preserve all of that. Have faith, brothers and sisters. See you next time. This episode of One Step Beyond was written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music in this episode is by Noel Fletcher. The theme song is by Madness, used with permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. To subscribe to a newsletter or just reach out via email, contact One Step Beyond at ijamming.net, I-J-A-M-M-I-N-G.net. 
And of course, you can find us on social media. Just search One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher. And we should come up on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can find all of these links in the show notes. One Step Beyond is available on just about every podcast platform known to man and most likely a few that have yet to be discovered. And it's hosted by Acast. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button and or leave a positive rating and or review. Special thanks to Radio Kingston for airing these episodes and for supplying studio space when not under lockdown. Until next time, stay safe and stay active.